everyone. Welcome to episode 199 of the Book Cougars, Two Middle-Aged Women on the Hunt for a Good Read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. Happy New Year, everyone. Yes, Happy New Year. This is our first time recording in the new year without a guest. We yes. have Russell for the top tens of the first episode of the year. Right, which we recorded at the very end of 2023. We try to read as late as we can before we record that episode with him because we're all pretty much 2023. I feel for people who have jobs where they have to pick the top of 2023 in October or something like that. I can't imagine. Yeah. Uh, The next months I'd be like, oops, this would have gone on. Oops, (laughs) this one too. Maybe it takes pressure off. Who knows? Right. Well, we have some thank yous to issue. We would love to thank Melissa and Joan for increasing their patronage over on Patreon. We really appreciate it. We also really appreciate those of you who shopped via bookshop.org, doing your holiday shopping. That really helps the book cougars as well. Absolutely. Part of it goes to an independent bookstore and part of it goes to us. And they do that with all of their affiliates, which is really lovely to think that you're helping indies across the country. We also want to make a couple housekeeping announcements for the first of the year. Our first quarter read-along is Indigo by Beverly Jenkins. We will be having a Zoom discussion about that book in early March. March 3rd, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Send an email to bookcougars at gmail.com if you want to join us. And then we also have a Goodreads thread set up for both our romance theme of the year. So if you have just general romance conversation you want to add, put it there. We also have a thread set up for Indigo specifically. Right. Yeah. And then with the Indigo thread, just, you know, if you have a spoiler in your comment, just use that little toggle switch that they have where you can say this comment contains a spoiler. We always like to let people know way ahead of time what our book is for the quarter so everyone can get it and get it from the library if there should be a bunch of holds or anything like that. But we do want to avoid spoilers for the most part. And then with that general romance thread, it's kind of fun because one of the questions we asked was, are you new to romance? Do you have any experience with it? And several people said they don't. But we were both honored that a couple of people said they trusted us with the selections we'd make this year. So thanks to everybody who's conversing over there and who trusts our book recommendations. Yeah. And thank you for people who are also helping us learn more and putting in recommendations and potential guests that they have as ideas. So keep those coming. We're learning from you as well. Another housekeeping reminder we'd like to give to everyone is that we have the listener top 10 form for you to fill out if you would like to participate. It's a Google form of your own top 10s of 2023. And reminder, they don't have to be books published in 2023, just what you read in 2023. So, you know, if you got on Emily Wilson's The Iliad, when it was first published in October, that could count. (laughs) Yeah. And also, I'm just really enjoying the comments people are making people who have submitted their forms already like this is hard. Yes, it is. (laughs) This would be easier if we could pick 15. Agreed. (laughs) (laughs) I've been getting a lot of giggles. Originally, we were going to stop it, I think on January 9th, but please keep them coming to January 22nd. And then the last episode in January, we'll talk about the listener top tens. Yeah, that's always so much fun to see what authors are trending or books people have in common. So we appreciate that. Again, it's a Google form. You just have to have the author and the title of the book. That's all. 
And that link is in the show notes. The other exciting news we have is that we're starting a reading salon in 2024 with our Patreon community. Right. And this is something that we thought long and hard over. And we are going to make it a benefit for people who are patrons at the $5 and above level. Yeah, our read along Zoom conversations, you don't have to contribute anything to the book cougars. But we wanted to do something special for those who are part of the Patreon community. Some people do special podcast episodes, we really didn't want to go there. We want everyone to have access to our podcasts, no matter whether you're contributing or not. But we thought this reading salon could be a fun way to thank people and to also have another excuse to spend time with people talking about books. Absolutely. Yeah. And just get to know each other. When we have our quarterly read along conversations, they're always so much fun. And there's always so much more to say. So the salon is going to be a place to talk about anything bookish, what you're currently reading, what you want to read, what you wish you hadn't read, um, (laughs) movie adaptations of books, bookish stuff in the news, anything really the only thing we won't be discussing in this reading salon is the current read-along pick for the quarter, because we do want to keep that for the Zoom conversation we have that is free and open to everyone. Right. So our first salon is Sunday, January 28th at 7pm. This will be over Zoom. And we're setting this up so it'll be the fourth Sunday of every month in 2024. If you are already a patron at the $5 level or above, you will get an email. You don't have to do anything. If you are not yet a part of our Patreon community, you have time to join. We would love to have you. And if you're not interested in any of this, that's fine too. You can always email us and tell us what you're reading. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And social media, we're available pretty much everywhere. So now we are getting into some juicy stuff here. Yes, we are. Well, we think it's juicy. We, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to talk a little bit about our 2024 reading intentions before we get into our regular segments. Yes. My first, Chris, that I do every year at the strike of midnight on New Year's is to set my goal on Goodreads to 52 books. Same. Okay. Yeah. And it's really funny because when I was setting up the Indigo link, It was a couple days before the end of the new year and Goodreads was just not opening. I would just get the error saying something went wrong. Oops, sorry. And I think it was everyone, you know, getting on Goodreads and putting all their books for 2023 in and thinking like, oh, I forgot that one. So yeah, 52 (laughs) books. I love that because it's a book a week and it helps keep me on pace, which I appreciate. I mean, now since we've been doing the book Cougars, I think... I may not need that quite as much, but psychologically, I still like it. Yeah, I like it. It does help me track my reading. And I did something that you talked about when we were reflecting on our goals of 23, which is I did add a shelf for cookbooks, which I love. I also love seeing what my friends on Goodreads are reading. Yes, It really helps me live vicariously in a lot of ways and see what other books are out there. Mm-hmm. I wanted to discuss with you, though, I'm thinking about starting to star books again which I got away from because it caused me too much stress. Mm -hmm. Do you have thoughts on that? I have been inconsistent with stars this year. For a while, I wasn't doing it. And then I did start doing it with some and some I don't. I don't know why. I don't really think they matter. I mean, I know they matter to the authors because, of course, you want to see that your book is four star or above. 
And some readers take it very seriously, like they have their own system of how they rank books. I'm up in the air about it, personally. Yeah, I just ranked one for the first time in years now, Mm -hmm. last night, and it was like back and forth, back and forth. And I thought, oh, right, this is why I stopped doing this. Yeah, Because I don't think a three-star review is a bad review. I don't either. Yeah. And I think like sometimes that's how the book hit you. And I think most readers understand that. They understand that a review and a star reading is what that reader felt at that time. Mm -hmm. Even if they took a while to write the review, it was something that happened recently. And like every social media platform, there are people who do bad things on Goodreads, you know, who try to tank other authors' works. Most don't do that. Yeah. But, you know, like Emily said, we love to connect with readers there. So you can join our Goodreads group. And also send us a friend request, too, if you'd like, because that's really a great way to see what everyone's reading. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. What else? Oh, I'm going to continue one of my intentions from last year, which is reading Maggie O'Farrell. I have five novels left, and I'm hoping she doesn't publish any more this year. (laughs) (laughs) Not true, Maggie, please write. So I'm hoping to make tracks on that. Nice. I have my Willa Cather short story project that I will continue on. I'm happy to say that this year, 2024, will be the last year of the Willa Cather Short Story Project. We will have the final story to be read is Uncle Valentine in August. And Chris is writing about that over on her blog, chriswolock.com, and we will link to that in the show notes. I'm starting my own short story project this year, One of my goals is to read from my short story collections, which stare at me from my shelves. So I made a huge stack in my house. And on Monday mornings, for 52 Mondays this year, I'm hoping to read one short story. I'm off to a good start. Good. I'm glad to hear that. And I'm not posting this anywhere, but I am keeping a spreadsheet for myself just to track it. It's kind of a checks and balance. Are you going to talk about them here? Yes. Podcast? Great. Okay. Wonderful. Well, one thing that I'm going to keep in mind this year is to read a book when I want to read it and not hold it back for some future monthly theme thing or uh, reading marathon or anything like that. I'm going to read it when I want to read it because I just can't stand that feeling of wanting to read a book and you're so excited about it. But then that month comes around or event and you're just like, oh, I'm not in the mood for this now or I have too much work stuff going on and I can't squeeze it in or what have you. So that is what I'm going to keep in mind as best I can and not commit to things too much. I am doing a group read of the Iliad right now. And in March, I'm going to be reading Moby Dick with Kate from the Bronx and anyone else who would like to join us. So I still want to participate in some buddy reads or, you know, the monthly things. I'm really interested in the monthly themed readings, but I'm going to just try and read what I want when I want. Sounds great. I'm continuing another intention from last year, which is to read one new to me cookbook every month and try to cook one recipe from it. I'm a big fan of getting cookbooks from the library. So I'm going to try to keep my finger on the pulse of what's coming out new and maybe looking back at some that I never got to when they came out. Nice. And that's part of why I started a cookbook shelf on Goodreads so I can track it a little Mm. more easily. That's great. Yeah, and really zero in on those. So If you could let me know what night you'll be cooking those recipes, (laughs) 
I can like coincidentally have to drop something off at your house. Sounds like a deal. <laughs> I'm game. That makes it more fun, actually. I love that idea. The other thing is I have a couple 19th century novels that I want to read. I think I've read more American 19th century than British. So there are three on my mind already that I purchased. The Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte, Silas Marner by George Eliot, A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, all British. However, I have chosen an author of the year that I'd like to focus on. Probably not too much, but, you know, I just did join the society for her, Margaret Fuller. Oh, right on. Yeah. So I had been a member of the Margaret Fuller Society like way back when it first started in the 90s. But you know how life goes. So I just re-upped my membership with them. And the first thing I want to reread of hers is Summer on the Lakes in 1843. And I'm going to be taking this with me on a trip coming up. I might need a new copy because I'm showing Emily I have so many marks and everything. And it gets kind of hard to reread a book that you've read several times and you have annotations all over the place. We'll see how that goes. So I'm inspired by Russell. If you've listened to our top 10 episode that we did episode 198, Russell talked about that he and his husband ask each other to do something at the beginning of the year. Russell asked his husband to pick up his clothes and put them in the hamper. His husband asked him to read a book a month with him in his favorite genre, which is horror, thriller, scary, bloody stuff, which isn't necessarily Russell's favorite. So I presented to my gentleman caller that we see one book to film adaptation per month. Oh, neat. Yeah, we don't necessarily have to read the book. I mean, I'm an upholder, so I'll probably try. But there's so many. And we struggle with trying to figure out what to watch together. I get to choose. There's no conversation. We watch it. He said, okay. (laughs) His choice was for us to go to one new museum a month. And then he backpedaled and said, actually, it doesn't have to be new. We can just go to a museum once a month. If there's an exhibition at one of the ones we've been to, we can go. That's lovely. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I'm excited. Speaking of museums, I have a couple Biblio adventures that are on my wish list for this year. And one of them is to go to Sarah Orne Jewett's house up in Maine. I've wanted to go there for a long time author homes are considered museums. And so she's on my list to get up there. I'd also like to read a little bit more by her this year. That's not necessarily part of my intentions. It's in the back of my mind. But getting up to her house is definitely on my wish list this year. Awesome. That sounds great. I hope I'm invited. (laughs) (laughs) I have a feeling you will be. (laughs) And then the other thing is it's a joint biblio adventure. So a book cougar's biblio adventure and this ties in with the whole margaret fuller thing along with something that you and i've wanted to do emily is to take the ferry from connecticut to long island and there is a barnes and noble that recently opened on long island and so the plan will be to take the ferry from new london to long island hit that barnes and noble drive around long island a little bit hopefully visit a couple indie bookstores And then also go to the shoreline where you can see Fire Island, which is where Margaret Fuller perished in a shipwreck to just kind of pay tribute to her. Yeah, yes. That sounds like a very full day. Yeah, and then either take the ferry 
back. I think it's, is it Bridgeport where the ferry is uh, that direction or just drive back through New York City? So we'll see how that goes. But I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. I have two Biblio Adventure hopefuls. One is to go to Omnivore Books in San Francisco, which specializes in cookbooks. And then the other is to go to DC, which you and I've talked about doing. And there's Bold Fork Books, which also specializes in cookbooks. But then there's also Politics and Prose, Mm -hmm. which I've always wanted to go to. And they have great events. So maybe we can figure that out this year. That would be fun. Yeah. Yeah. I have to get on their newsletter list to just keep tabs on their events. I've been there once and it it was a fantastic bookstore with a really lovely cafe as well. Oh, right on. Yeah. Then we can shop more if we fill our bellies. Exactly. (laughs) So, Chris, what are you currently reading? Oh, my. Well, the first thing I'm currently reading is The Iliad by Homer, the new Emily Wilson translation. I'm primarily listening to it on audio. I did purchase the book when it was first released. So the audio is narrated by Audra McDonald, and it's only available through Audible. She does a really great job. She's a pleasure to listen to. I like some of her voices that she does. There's this old character who's kind of gnarly, and I think she really pegs that well. I read The Iliad way back in college, and I remember enjoying it for the most part, but thinking it was a little, not a little, but very different from like my own military experience, because I had just gotten out of the Marines, and then I went to college. And so reading about these warriors who were supposedly, quote, leaders, but really acted like big babies pouting over their trophies being taken by another warrior, it just really struck me as ridiculous. But the Iliad is still taught at the military academies and things like that. And people, veterans have said that, and I'd never been in combat, so I can't speak to that. But people who have said it really resonates a lot with the feelings that they had in combat situations. So I'm reading it with that in mind. Very cool. Yeah. I have two Elizabeth McCrackens going here. She's an author that writes both fiction and nonfiction. I've only read one of her books, The Giant's House, which was a novel that I really enjoyed. And I have a copy of her memoir, Exact Replica of a Figment of My Imagination, which covers one year in her life where she gave birth to a stillborn baby and then ended up by the end of the next year having a baby. It's a very small, thin memoir. And I picked this up when we were up in Provincetown this summer. It was just sitting for free at the library. So I got myself a copy. And then I also have a copy of her newest book, The Hero of This Book, which is a novel, but it's kind of meta about an author that's walking around. I believe it's Paris. Her mother has passed away and she's reminiscing about her mother's life and having remembrances of her mother. And then I believe she goes back and packs up the family home. So I have one of her nonfiction and one of her fiction going at the same time. Nice. Well, I'm reading a nonfiction book. Forest Walking, Discovering the Trees and Woodlands of North America. This is by Peter Volleben and Jane Billinghurst. I picked it up recently while browsing at the bookstore. And because I love walking in the forest, we have some lovely wooded trails in Connecticut through our forests. And I just feel so refreshed and at ease in the forest. I know not everybody does. And I miss it because we live on the shoreline, so I'm not complaining. I I love to see the horizon as well, and seeing the sunset is so special, which is 
Not something you usually see when you're in the forest. But Peter has written a lot of books about trees, including The Hidden Life of Trees, which I know has been very popular. I'll talk about this more when I finish it, but there are two things I wanted to mention here. They have a chapter on dressing appropriately, because as people have said, there's no bad weather, there's just inappropriate clothing. He also talks about bug spray and protecting yourself from bugs and stuff like that. And one of the tips is that mosquitoes and bugs like freshly washed hair. Hmm. So the next time you go on a hike in the woods, don't wash your hair. <laughs> For the week before. But they're attracted to the, the sense yeah, I can of, see that. of that. Yeah. So that was really interesting. And then I just wanted to show Emily this picture. It's a picture of the pileated woodpecker activity on a tree. Oh, so cool. Yeah, We have one in our neighborhood right now. Yeah, that's pecking away at a dead tree. And so oh. one of the things they do is they peck a huge hole in a tree, and then eventually owls come and live in that. So he talks about what biologists are calling guilds. It's arrangements of give and take that involve different winners and losers, depending on the day or season, but together they keep the whole system running smoothly. So he's talking in terms of like caterpillars who eat your plants, but then wasps come and plant their eggs in that caterpillar and eventually destroy it that way, or a bird will come and eat it. So I just really enjoy his writing a lot. Again, that's Forest Walking by Peter Volleben and Jane Billingshurst. The other book I'm currently reading is an audiobook that I'm listening to. That's Tom Lake by Ann Patchett. I have to say, when I've peeked at the listener top tens, Tom Lake is hovering at number one of the most popular. And this is narrated by Meryl Streep, the actress. So a lot of people have been talking about how great this audiobook is. I just started it this morning, and it is about two young women who are living in a small town. They've been asked to volunteer when tryouts are taking place for a local community theater production of Our Town. Mm -hmm. And they're in the school gym and um, getting people registered. And this cracked me up, Chris. They were asking for people to fill out a form with their name and if they have headshots and their resumes. And then they said if they have a stage name. And I was like, oh, Chris and I need to think of stage <laughs> names. What would our stage names be? Well, I don't know. I think that ship has sailed. <laughs> or we could just tell everybody, you know, Emily Fine and Chris Wallach are not our real names. AKA. I'm Tisnelda Schwiddledig. <laughs> and you are. No. <laughs> it just gave me a giggle. I was like, what would, like, I mean, I know some, some people take stage, quote, stage names because they need to be registered in a specific guild or something and their true name is taken already. And some people do it because they think it'll improve their career if they choose a name. Oh, yeah. A lot of people who had like, quote, immigrant sounding names have changed it to sound a little bit more Anglo-Saxon or what have you. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, Tom Lake by Ann Patchett. I'm really looking forward to getting farther along in it. And Meryl Streep so far is doing a fantastic job. That's great. I've heard so many great things about that novel. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the last thing I'm currently reading is a novel that's coming out March 5th from Dutton, which I received through NetGalley. So thank you to the publisher in NetGalley for that. The novel is called Thirst by Marina Zuschuk. I'm probably mutilating her name. Her last name is Y-U-S-Z-C-Z-U-K. And this is translated by Heather Cleary. It's a vampire novel. 
This one is part of the trend of novels that are feminist and gothic coming out of Latin America. This is set in present-day Buenos Aires and an earlier time period. I've heard early 19th century. I couldn't help but look up some of the things that were mentioned. So like the cathedral in Buenos Aires was built in the 1790s. And so when one of the characters gets there from Europe, she flees. She's from Eastern Europe originally. So thank Dracula's castle, makes her way through Europe and finally flees Europe, taking a ship from Bremen to Buenos Aires, where she ends up. So when she lands, that cathedral is just like, not fully built yet. It's set during the two different time periods. The first chapter is more contemporary. And then you go back to this vampire woman. And I will talk more about this, I'm sure. So again, that is Thirst by Marina Yelschuk. So Emily, what have you just read? Well, y'all, I have a towering stack here. Over the holidays, my gentleman caller was sick. I got sick. My book buddy was sick. So I had a lot of time alone to read. So I've got a lot. I won't talk in depth about all of them, but we'll mention all of them. The first I'm going to start with is the pair of short stories that I've read year to date. There's been two Mondays so far. And the first one I read was The End of the World is a Cul-de-Sac by Louise Kennedy. And this is the title story in the short story collection, The End of the World is a Cul-de-Sac. And it was a very dark, somewhat feral short story about a young woman who's been left alone in a housing development that went south during construction. So she's in a house looking out along this cul-de-sac of houses that were never finished. Mm. And trigger warning, there is drug use in this short story, which really surprised me. I wasn't expecting that. But she's an amazing writer. And I'm reminded why I at first didn't like short stories, which is just as you're getting into the characters, the story ends, but also what authors can do in a short story in such few words is amazing. Louise Kennedy, and she's the author of the novel Trespasses, which was her debut, and she's in her 60s. So she's someone who's come to publishing later in life. And then the second one I read was in The Best American Short Stories, 1997, which was guest edited by E. Annie Prue, and the editor was Katrina Kennison. And one of the things that Kennison writes about in the introduction to this collection is just the beginning of when people started to publish short stories on the World Wide Web. And how that was changing everything because their job when they're editing the best American short stories is to look at short stories that typically had come out in literary journals, published in paper literary journals, and suddenly this whole world of online literary journals was opening up to them. So that was a really interesting part when you think back to 1997. But the short story I read in this collection talk about short, it was two pages. And it's Powder by Tobias Wolf. And this came from his short story collection, Fish Stories. And it's about a son and a father going skiing on Christmas Eve, the parents are on the verge of divorce, and the father had to beg the mother to take the son on this little trip. And you get the sense that part of that is because maybe he doesn't always act in the best way, the most responsible way, maybe. And sure enough, 
it's time for them to go, but the dad wants to do just one more run and one more run, and then they go to head home and the road is closed due to snow. And more happens, amazingly, in two pages. I've never read Tobias Wolf, so it reminded me that one of the cool things about reading short stories is you can read a, an author who you've never really gotten a chance to read in a short form. Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. You know, you also mentioned trigger warnings. I came across a really great resource recently. It's the Trigger Warning Database. And you can find that at triggerwarningdatabase.com. And it's really quite thorough in terms of the different types of trigger warnings it offers. You can also search by author or novel title, which is really incredible. Check that out. Yeah, we'll put that link in the show notes. One of the books I read, it's been a while since I've read it, but Archives 101 is the title by Lois Hamill. My review of it appears in the most recent issue of The American Archivist. I'm really happy to see that come out. Archives 101 is a reference book designed for people who run small archives or maybe historical society archives. It gives a really great overview of all the different aspects of running an archive. You know, larger archives will have specialists who handle all the various aspects of running an archive. But when you're working at a smaller place, you might be a solo archivist or have volunteers. It's just a really good resource to get that overview. Again, that's Archives 101 by Lois Hamill. It's through Roman and Littlefield, that publisher that I mentioned, that published one of my favorite books of last year, The Dictionary of the Book. And you said that was available online. They can read it online, right? Yeah, we can put a link in the show notes to my review. And the whole issue is really, I haven't read the whole thing yet because it just came out yesterday, but it's a really great resource. And I don't know if every article is available for free, but the reviews definitely are. Right on. And I think some of the articles are. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) So I finished The Kamigawa Food Detectives by Hisashi Kashiwai, translated by Jesse Kirkwood. This book is going to be available on February 13th. And this was a really fun, really slim novel. The premise of it is that it's an off-the-grid restaurant that you can only find by this very esoteric ad in a local paper or something like that. And it's a daughter and father team that are cooking this beautiful food. People come in and have a meal and they're typically there because they want to find the food detectives that help them learn about or recreate a dining experience they had from their past. So after they eat this meal, they go back to the back office and the daughter kind of takes their information down. And then the father is the one that's the true detective that goes out to try to figure out what it is that they're missing from their past. And it's always about the food and yet more than just the food. It was broken up into six different chapters, each with a specific dish. This was a bestseller in Japan when it came out. It sold millions of copies. And the author is a dentist. Oh, interesting. Which I think is so interesting. It'll make you very hungry when you read this book. It is a book that I did kind of wish I could have read it in the native language because there were a few metaphors that I was like, "Mm, something missed the mark here in translation. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But it was really fun. I highly recommend it. Again, that's called The Kamagawa Food Detectives by Hisashi Kashiwai. I just want to give another shout out to the Emily Dickinson face-to-face. 
by Martha Dickinson Bianchi, which I glowed about in the last episode, our top 10 episode with Russell. This is a slim little book. And if you like Emily Dickinson, you have to buy it. You just do because it's wonderful. It's written by Emily Dickinson's niece. So it's one of the most intimate accounts we have of things that Emily did or how Emily was. And it's just a priceless little book. You've read it a couple times already, haven't you? I have, yes. And it's still there right on top of my desk. I just like to see it there. It's very comforting. And it's based on two books that Martha Dickinson Bianchi had put out. So they're condensed a bit. And so I'm looking forward to eventually tracking down those originals just to kind of see, because one of them just had a lot of different quotes and letters and things like that. So I I look forward to tracking it down. It's a small little book. I saw it at McNally Jackson Bookstore, and it's a McNally Editions book. It just came out in 2023. Again, Emily Dickinson, Face to Face by Martha Dickinson Bianchi. And the foreword is by poet Anthony Madrid, which is a hoot in itself. Really great foreword. I finished A Winter in New York by Josie Silver. This was my book of the month pick for December. The opening scene is a meet cute at a bookstore (laughs) on Valentine's Day where two people reach for the same book. It's the third book in a trilogy. It just came out. Y'all know how you feel about books like that. It's hilarious because it's a man and a woman, and the woman then tries to convince the man that he doesn't want the book by suggesting a host of other books, which was really funny. Like, surely you don't want this, you want this. But the woman is a UK chef who's moved to the United States for a geographic restart. Her mother was a singer, so they had somewhat of an itinerant life, but New York had always had a lot of meaning to her mother, and her mother's passed away. So when she wants a restart, she thinks... New York, that's where I'll go. She ends up on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, which is fun. That's where we go to visit on Ellen. There's a famous gelateria called Bellotti Gelato. It's in Little Italy. And she walks up to the door of this place and it somehow feels familiar to her. That's all I'm going to say. Love ensues. It's a happily ever after. I was kicking off our year of romance with this book. There's also a cat in it named Smirnoff, which was (laughs) hilarious. And in, I forgot to say, in the Kamigawa Food Detectives, there's a cat in there as well named Drowsy. And both of the cats kind of linger around and they're just a funny little part of the novels. If you're looking for something that's very New York and food forward and just a light, happy read. I recommend this. Again, it's called A Winter in New York. And there is a recipe in the back for the vanilla gelato that plays a starring role in the novel. Well, I finished Free Gift by James Ben, which is a standalone historical fiction novel set during the time of the Revolutionary War. Free Gift is the name of the main character who is an African American man who was enslaved by a benevolent master, for lack of a better way of saying it. And when Free Gift's mom dies, she tells him who his father was, which he'd never known anything about. And spoiler alert, a little bit, this is mentioned very early on, it might even be mentioned on the back of the book, I'm not 100% because I read a digital copy, the father turns out to be Benedict Arnold. So she says to him, promise me you'll find him and introduce yourself. So after the mom dies, the 
man who owned free gift emancipates him because the revolution is raging and he's been enlightened that enslavement is bad and wrong even if you do treat people well. So Freegift takes off on a raft down the river to deliver some goods to New London. And that's where most of the action takes place. And it's so much, I don't know that much about the Revolutionary War. I think what I've read about it has to do with George Washington and other key players, perhaps. So James Ben, who's great, you know, he writes the Billy Boyle World War II series. He's a librarian by profession, retired now, just does a great job with all the research. So there's a lot of seafaring stuff going on in this book and piratry. I learned so much is how I feel. And I'm in good hands with James Bond. So Pre-Gift is trying to get to Long Island where the British are. Benedict Arnold's already gone over to the other side and everyone in New London hates him. So Pre-Gift is not telling anyone Things happen. I don't want to say too much because it's a really wonderful unfolding of things. But I learned a lot about the Revolutionary War. And I would love it if there were a sequel or if James Ben wrote more historical fiction in that time period. We'll have to let him know. I know. Yeah. <laughs> but it made me want to find a book about the maritime role during the Revolutionary War. So again, that was Free Gift by James Ben. Highly recommend if you're into historical fiction. I read two books for my Maggie Farrell focus, concentration, should I say? Chris, I had to get from super, super inner library loan from the local Guilford Library. I went up to them and I said, you know, I can't believe there's not a copy of this book here. Maggie O'Farrell is such a famous author. This is one of her children's books. It's called The Boy Who Lost His Spark. They said, I'm surprised we don't have it either. And they got me a special interlibrary loan from Holland's University, which I thought was really odd, mm -hmm. but very thankful. And it had this big special cover on it with a special sticker. And they said, you have to come return it back to us at the Guilford Library. And it was a shorter loan. As a matter of fact, I think it might be slightly overdue. But anyway, this is about a family who moved from the city to the country a new school, a new house, etc. And the little boy is very sad and depressed. And as a matter of fact, the way that she describes depression, I thought was really interesting. He says, he missed their flat. He missed the city, its yellow poles of streetlights, the trams that used to rattle past at night. He felt so low and listless sitting there as if his insides had been stuffed with damp rags. Mm. Wow. I just thought, what an amazing way to describe what depression feels like for a little child. And there's the rumor that there's a creature, an imaginary creature living in the mountains, or maybe not imaginary. And so that's what the story is about, whether or not that creature really lives there. Beautiful watercolor drawings by Daniela Jaglenka Terrazini. If you're looking for reading more Maggie O'Farrell or reading a book to, I think they said it was for seven young readers, seven and above. I highly recommend this if you can get a copy and or recommend it to your local library. So again, that was called The Boy Who Lost His Spark by Maggie O'Farrell. And then I read one of her novels, The Hand That First Held Mine. 
this is told from two main character points of view. You're in the 1950s with a woman named Lexi Sinclair, who's living in the English countryside. She's the oldest. Her family has a lot of kids. And she's wanting to get out and get to the big city. And she does. I'm not going to tell you how. (laughs) And then the other is more present-day London with a woman named Alina who's living through the haze of having just given birth to a child. And she's married to a man, Ted, who's having these odd flashbacks about his youth. And you don't know if he's having seizures or if he's just thinking back and getting lost in his own thoughts. And you know, at some point, these characters are going to come across each other, but you don't really know how. But in the hands of Maggie O'Farrell, she did it quite well. I really enjoyed this novel. It's about love. It's about loss. It's about family and motherhood, evil choices that people make in families, secrets that are kept in families. And I will say, I know that you're not supposed to think novels are semi-autobiographical, but having read her memoir, I Am, I Am, I Am, there are some threads from her own life in here, like a woman giving birth and almost bleeding to death. That happened to Maggie O'Farrell. So it was interesting having read her memoir now and then reading one of her novels to see some of those threads. I will say I also did finish this with the audiobook, which was narrated by Anne Flosnick, and it kind of brought me over the finish line. So again, The Hand That First Held Mine by Maggie O'Farrell. Two more books in my Maggie O'Farrell readathon. Congrats. Thank you. Very nice. Well, Speaking of starring books on Goodreads, I just double-checked, and the next book I did give five stars to, and that is The Book of Magic by Alice Hoffman. Oh, my gosh. This book, loved it so much. It's part of her Practical Magic series. There are four books in this series. I was a little confused because Goodreads says this is book two in the series, but then when you look at it, The books are 0.1, 0.2, 1, and 2. So it's a weird system of numbering. This one involves three generations of the Owens family. Wow. As I wrote in my little short Goodreads review, like I adore the series and the Owens family, even though they can sometimes annoy me at times, (laughs) you know, because sometimes they do things. You're like, oh, my God, no. Sounds like the definition of family. <laughs> right, exactly, right. In this one, as I said, it's so it's three generations of Owenses. Franny, Jet, and Vincent are all the oldest generation, their grandparent age. I can't go into all the detail about everyone because it would also give spoilers, and I definitely don't want to do that. But this one involves trying to track down the source. Well, they know the source of the curse. The curse was laid out by Maria Owens when she was being hanged as a witch in Salem after having left England following the man she loved. And as she's going to be hanged, she gives a curse that to fall in love will just bring heartache and misery. So that's what the Owens family descendants have lived with all this time. Something happens and they're trying to end the curse. They're in Massachusetts. There's travel to France. There's travel to England. There's a lot of action. The first part of it was really tough for me to read. It was a bit sad. It's about Jet, who's one of my favorite Owens characters. And then it just gets really fast-paced at times. I was really kind of feeling like I was reading a thriller. I was getting a little apprehensive 
over things that were happening. It's break-ins and spells being cast that are harmful so people could do nefarious things. I loved it so much. I highly recommend this series. This is a tradition I've had to start the year with a book from the Practical Magic series. And now that I've read all four of them, I don't know what I'll do. I don't know if I'll just reread them. But I think it's just a wonderful way to start the year or end the year or read on any of the other 363 days of the year because they do have some magical realism and talk of magic, but a lot of it is using nature, you know, herbs and spices and things like that, which science has proven do help. So there are people who are born with magic, and then there are practitioners who learn it throughout their entire life and become really adept at helping to heal people. Just lovely. It's a wonderful series about love and the importance of nature and just how hard life can be, but also how rewarding as well. Again, that was The Book of Magic by Alice Hoffman. That's one sometime, even though I'm not a rereader, that I would love to read the whole series now that it's out. Although I wouldn't put it past her to write another book in it. Who knows? She says she's done. Mm. We'll see. Well, it would be interesting. I wonder when she would set it. Like what time period? Yeah, because she's already done a prequel. So who knows? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I also think I would look back and try to figure out how I would want to read them because I did read them as they came out. But when I saw her interviewed about it, she said, you know, it's really up to people how they want to read them in what order. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. I've always had a fantasy of taking a big series and reading it backwards. Oh, interesting. You know, kind of blows my mind. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, there'd be spoilers galore, Mm -hmm. but then things would make sense too as well. Mm -hmm. As he went back, like, oh, okay, now I know why that character is Mm. that messed up. Even though I know what happened to them, this explains it a lot more. Who knows? Hmm. I don't know. (laughs) I finished a novel called Comfort Food. And if you can see, I'm showing Chris the cover. It's got this beautiful photo of apricots in a bowl. I love apricots. This cover caught my eye. I bought it for the cover. This was when we were in Lenox, Mass at the Lenox Library, the public library. They had this great Friends of the Library sale going on. It's a permanent sale in one of the rooms of the library. This woman, Kate Jacobs, the author, also was the author of the Friday Night Knitting Club, which I know I had heard of. It was very popular when it came out, but I had never heard of Comfort Food. It's about... Augusta Gus Simpson is a widow with two adult daughters. She was widowed in her 30s. So she really raised these young women on her own. And she had to figure out how to make a living. So she started a luncheonette and then fell into having a cooking show called Cooking with Gusto. Get it? Gus? Gusto or Gusto, however you want to say it. But we start this novel on the cusp of her 50th birthday where the show is not doing very well. So they decide they're going to pair her up with a woman named Carmen, who just won an Iron Chef competition, but she also happened to be a beauty pageant winner. So she's young and beautiful. And they start a cooking show called Eat, Drink, and Be. And it doesn't go very well. It was really interesting to read this book, which originally was published in 2008, which is like the early days of the Food Network, and these cooking shows on TV, and be reading it now where the Food Network is so different now, and chefs are cooking out of their homes using their phones. (laughs) You know, it's like a different world. It was very funny. 
it was light. It was a happily ever after, which I wasn't expecting. So my second romance of the year. If you like the idea of reading something about someone starring on the Food Network, you'll love this book. There's food and love and mothers and daughters. Again, it's called Comfort Food by Kate Jacobs. I remember when those came out. I was working as a bookseller then and very popular. Because it was a trilogy. I think the knitting club was the Friday Night Knitting Club. And the comfort food, I think, was one that came out in the middle of them. Maybe she tried to do something different. Yeah. She hasn't published anything since. The three knitting club books and the comfort food. I did read The Para Method by Tiago Forte, which is I think something I mentioned on a prior episode, I just wanted to give it a shout out again, in part because I finished it, but also in part because I think it's a helpful tool. The subtitle is Simplify, Organize, and Master Your Digital Life. And so PARA stands for Projects, Areas, Resources, and Archives. And it's a way to organize your digital files, which I find very helpful because, as he says, In school, you organize stuff by subject. So your psychology stuff is here, your history stuff is there. And so it just gets unwieldy the older you get and the more you have to deal with, depending on what you're doing and how digital you live your life. I have a lot of handwritten notebooks as well, and I will never stop writing by hand because I think it's a different, it's obviously a different feeling, but I think They've proven that hand-brain connection, too, and how it helps you remember things more and differently. Anyway, this is all about digital stuff. So I've even organized my email now with this, which is super helpful, because before I had a bunch of files in my email that were helpful, but it got a little little big. (laughs) So now I'm using this organizational system is really helpful. I recommend the book if you are somebody who struggles with a lot of electronic files. Again, that's The Para Method by Tiago Forte. I finished The Cemetery of Untold Stories by Julia Alvarez. This book publishes on April 2nd. This is about Alma, who's one of four sisters. They're originally from the Dominican Republic. They're all living stateside. And after their father dies, they learn that they own property in the Dominican Republic, enough property that it can be split off between them. And Alma chooses what her sisters think of as the lesser property. But her plan is to build a cemetery there. And it's a cemetery to bury her unfinished manuscripts, because Alma is a writer. And so she does, she moves to the Dominican Republic and hires someone to help her create this cemetery. I wanted to read this to you, Chris. This is something that Alma had told her students when she was teaching. If you bring forth what is inside you, what is inside you will save you. If you do not bring forth what is inside you, what is inside you will destroy you. And so that's the premise is these unfinished manuscripts. Part of the reason she couldn't finish them was because something to do with the story. So then the way she sets up the cemetery is people can only get in to visit it if they tell a story to the intercom that opens the gate. And depending on the story, they will or will not be let in. So the first person who gets let in is a woman named Philomena because of the story that she tells. And then Philomena, who ends up being hired to be a caretaker there, starts to communicate with the characters in these manuscripts 
that are buried. It is a fascinating story. When I first read the back cover, which I don't often do, I thought that the characters literally came to life. They don't. They come to life more in a magical realism, conversational way. Mm. It was a really good book. She really ties the characters together in an interesting way, as well as the sisters. Alma's sisters have a part to play in the novel, and they come to visit the Dominican Republic. And if you read her novel, Afterlife, which was the novel that published prior to this, it's a little reminiscent of that, because the character there lives in Vermont and is a retired professor. So... I don't know if it's supposed to be the same person. I didn't go back to see what the character's name was from Afterlife. So maybe I'll report back on that if I do that research. But again, this is called The Cemetery of Untold Stories by Julia Alvarez, available for pre-order now. It pubs on April 2nd. So I read Luann Rice's forthcoming novel last night. I love this. It kept me awake way past my bedtime, two nights in a row. I appreciate the advanced reader copy from Thomas and Mercer, and also NetGalley. I read it digitally. They also sent us wonderful paper copies as well, which I love. This is a novel that is set on the coast of Rhode Island in a historic, really swank hotel, really swank, during a blizzard. And someone is murdered out in the snow by the beach. Yeah, don't spoil, I don't want to say too much at all because it's, you know, it's a murder mystery and the characters are all wonderful. Some of them are repeat characters to Luann's book. So it's not part of a series necessarily, but it's in that same world. So one of the characters is a Connecticut detective. Another character, the brother is a Coast Guard commander. It involves the art world and maritime culture. It's set in Rhode Island. There are some scenes in different cities, too, or like Hartford is mentioned, New Bedford, Providence, just coastal cities for the most part that you love. And we had our first snowstorm here in Connecticut. So it was really lovely to read it with some snow coming down. I enjoy Luann Rice's book so much. I'm sorry, I can't say more about it because I don't want to give any spoilers, but I can't wait for Emily to read it. And I can't wait to attend Luann's book launch at Bank Square Books. Yes, that's on February 2nd. For any of you who are in New England, we'd love to see you there. Yeah. We'll put a link to the event in the show notes. Yeah, join us there and you can pre-order the book now. Again, that's Last Night by Luann Rice and... If you love mysteries, definitely add her to your list in general. Yeah, and if you can't wait, it's her book Last Day, I believe, is the one that has the some of those same characters in it. And I really enjoyed that book. Was that the one with the the artist who mm-hmm. made the box? Yes. No, that's the Shadow Box. Okay, well sh- Oh, Shadow Box also. Yeah, that's Shadow right. Box. There's a little nod to Shadow Box. Yeah, that's right. It's well. both of those. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So in other words, she has a backlist if you can't wait till February 2nd. Oh, love it. (laughs) A snowstorm on the coast. Like what could be better? I mean, you know, somebody got murdered, but (laughs) that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's for the sake of literature. I finished Family Lore by Elizabeth Acevedo. This is her first novel for adults. She's known for her National Book Award for the YA novel Poet X. She's also had 
poetry chapbooks and some other novels. This is about sisters who want they're all known for different things. One of them has a taste for limes, one of them can tell when people are going to die. There's a nice little list of family members in the front of characters in the book and what they're all known for. This revolves around Floor, who's the one who has the gift for spotting people's deaths. And she calls for her own wake, which kind of alerts her family to maybe what's coming ahead. Um, So the book starts out six weeks before the wake and goes back and forth from different points of view of the different family members, largely her daughter, who is also trying to interview the different family members, which is part of where the title family lore comes from. What is the history of our family and how we got to be where we are and how we interact with each other and how we know things about different family members and absorb it into family lore. I did struggle with the e-arc of this book because having the physical copy allowed me to flip back and forth to who the characters were more easily. Mm-hmm. Not that you can't do that with your e-book, but I really enjoyed getting the print copy. And then I have to say, I also listened to the audiobook, which was narrated by Elizabeth Acevedo, who has a beautiful voice. A lot of poets do. They're used to standing up and reading their poems. So I would highly recommend the audiobook as well. It's about sisters and the complexities of family. Oh, I wrote the end and put five underlines under it. I'm not going to say what it was, obviously, because that'd be mean, but it just gives you hope to get to the end, I guess. (laughs) Highly recommend it. Oh my God, this is so funny. In my book journal, I have the end in all capitals with five lines under it. And then later I have ending exclamation point. (laughs) Oh my God. I love it. Family lore, Elizabeth Acevedo, my brain in a notebook. (laughs) I also finished the book that I ended the year with was Kitchen Yarns by Anne Hood. This is notes on life, love and food. Anne Hood is someone who's also, like Elizabeth McCracken, writes fiction and nonfiction. These are essays about her life intertwined with her love of food. Anne Hood is someone who's had three marriages and three children. One of her daughters died very tragically, very suddenly with a, by a virulent form of strep. Mm. So some of these essays have to do with her grief. And they go back and forth in time as well from before she was a mother. And one of the things I really admired about her is that she does a lot of cooking just for herself. She was always someone from a very young age as a young single woman in New York City. She would make herself a pork tenderloin or roast a chicken. And those are all things that I think of doing. And maybe because I became a mother very young, it doesn't make sense to me to cook like that for myself. But I really appreciated how she wrote about that in this. And then she talked about how she would then take the food and make other things from it. Because that's what I think about. Like, why would I want a whole chicken? But then she would make chicken enchiladas or chicken soup or whatever. So I really appreciated that. So the design of the book is it's an essay. And then there are recipes at the end. And she builds to why she has these recipes in that particular essay. It is not a book that has recipes that would be for people who don't know their way around a kitchen. Mm, They're not super detailed recipes, but they also are not 
necessarily shishi recipes either. Like she makes grilled cheese with American cheese. You know, mm-hmm. there's one essay where she talks about her love of Thomas's English muffins, which I'm a big fan of as well. Now, her third husband is Michael Rollman, who is a James Beard award winning writer and chef. So as she's writing the essay about her love of Thomas's English muffins, he's hovering over her shoulder like, you're not really going to put that in the book, are you? <laughs> so I thought that was really funny. For me, it was very reminiscent of the writing of Lori Colwyn. And she has a nod to Lori Colwyn in here with one of her recipes. I loved these essays. If I could be a food writer, this is the kind of writer I'd want to be. It was the perfect book for me to read on New Year's Eve. Again, it's called Kitchen Yarns, Notes on Life, Love, and Food by Anne Hood. That one goes down. The book I picked up on New Year's Day was a ginormous tome called The Covenant of Water by Abraham Verghese. Listener Jessica is the one who inspired me to do a read-along with her. Cracks us up on day one. We were like, let's read 175 pages a week. I mean, this is a monster book. Yeah. It's huge. It's over 700 pages. And on day one, New Year's Day, she had read 100 pages. (laughs) And so we were like, well, maybe we should check back with each other. And then we just decided to plow ahead and read it the first week of the year. And we did. Wow. I can't believe you read the whole thing so swiftly. It's a very readable book. I also did listen to the audiobook. I read hybridly, sometimes listening and reading at the same time. Then I read over the weekend 300 pages just reading, and I had a couple drives, not very many, where I just listened. It is narrated by Abraham Verghese, 30-some-odd hours. Impressive. It took him 14 years to write this novel. In the notes, he talks about how his niece asked his mother to tell her about her childhood, and her mother sat down and wrote 150 pages about her youth. So that's where the germ of the idea of this novel came for him. He's a doctor at Stanford. And there's a lot of medical stuff in this book. That was the one part that I found got a little bit long for me. It becomes very important to the story. I'm not saying that it didn't need to be there. But those parts were a little tough for me to read. And it starts out in 1900. A young 12 year old girl is on the cusp of her wedding day. She's sad. She and her mother get on a boat and take her to Parambal, India, where she's to marry a man, I believe he's in his 40s, who's a widow and has a young boy. And she's a girl, you say? How she's old is 12. she? Oh, my gosh. So you think that I was just heartbroken to start, and it ends up being a beautiful, beautiful story where she doesn't really become his wife right away, which I was pleased about, but she does become the mother to his son, Jojo. And then the story just takes off from there. It goes almost a century. You learn a lot about Southern India. You learn a little bit about the caste system. This is a family that has what's called the condition, which means that many of them throughout history have died by water. The condition gets explained as the story unfolds. This is an epic novel. This man's brain is insane. (laughs) In a good way. In a good way. The one thing that Jessica and I talked about when we did have a conversation about it is that it would have been really helpful to have a character map. But on the other hand, 
it's not till the very final pages of the book that some of the relationships are revealed. So a character map would have ruined that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think they could have had like a basic character map, but not all the way through. That might have been a little helpful for some of the main characters. Because that part got a little bit challenging for me, who's name challenged anyway. But it's an epic sweeping novel. It takes place in southern India. Oh. The Covenant of Water by Abraham Verghese. There were a, just a couple quick passages I wanted to read to you, Chris. One of them cracked me up because of something you're going to talk about in Biblio Adventures. <laughs> Parambil is where a lot of the story takes place in Parambil, India. Until now, the measure of the years at Parambil has been Easter and Christmas, births and deaths, floods and drought. But 1933 is the year of Moby Dick. <laughs> Halfway through the book, Big Amici wants Philippos to ask Koshisar if this Moby Dick isn't all made up. It's entertaining, but isn't it one big lie? Ask him. <laughs> oh, so later there's a part where there's this emergency with a young baby and they're trying to rescue it. And this young Indian boy who's got the baby in his hand says, the baby ceased its breathing, Philipposa says. He, he colors as the doctor looks up surprised. Philippos has never been this close to a white person, never conversed in English with a native speaker. He's even harbored doubts that there really is a world where people speak the language of Moby Dick. Baby having much white, barnacles in his mouth and throat, like whale blubber, but tough, like leather. I harpooned some and he breathed a little, then presently it ceased again, sir. So the doctor starts to look at him baffled, like, why is he talking like this, you know? So this character learns to speak English through the reading of Moby Dick, and I believe it was Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. So the other thing that he talks a lot about is water, obviously, from the title, The Covenant of Water. He touches slightly on the caste system, but it's not heavy-handed. But I definitely did learn a lot about the history of Southern India and the food of India. There's some incredible food in this novel as well. The Covenant of Water, Abraham Verghese. I'm curious to see if this one lands on some people's top tens for our listener top tens. We will report on that. I have my eye on that one. Well, for, you're welcome for to it. Big book summer, maybe, <laughs> or something. I'll take all my tabs out before you read it. <laughs> Well, how about Biblio Adventures, Chris? Well, I went on a whale of an adventure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. Um, so speaking of Moby Dick, the new Bedford Whaling Museum just had their annual Moby Dick marathon that they have at the beginning of every year in January. And Emily and I had been signed up as readers, I think. I don't remember how many years ago now. But a snowstorm hit, and we weren't able to make it, unfortunately. So this year, I was fortunate enough to win tickets from their Instagram account for the Siemens Bethel. The main marathon is set in that big room with the scaled ship. Do you remember that when we visited? Mm -hmm. So there's a speaker at one end of the room at a podium, 
who's doing the reading and then everyone's sitting along the sides and standing along the sides. They have chairs and, you know, you can stand as well. I kind of hung over a railing a little bit with my book when I first got there. And that's wonderful. And so you sign up to be a reader and it's not like you read an entire chapter. I don't know how many pages it is, but it's wonderful to hear so many different voices read. I just enjoy that so much. That's one of my favorite things about public marathon like that. So when I arrived, they had just started chapter three, which is one of my favorite chapters of the whole book. It's when Ishmael meets Queequeg, and it's just a wonderful chapter. And I asked the woman who was standing next to me, you know, what chapter is it not? And so she told me, and so we, you know, sitting there reading. And then she eventually left to take a seat that had opened up, and somebody came in and asked me, what chapter are they You know, so it's really fun. And everybody has their own editions that they bring. There is one main edition that they read from, I believe, but that was one of the joys of the day, was seeing so many different editions of Moby Deck, from people's ratty old mass market book that's falling apart to these beautiful leather-bound editions that also looked in some cases, quite old and well-loved. I don't remember the last time I saw so many people walking around with books in their hands. That wasn't at like a bookstore or library. How fun. Yeah, it was really wonderful. The whole weekend is free that weekend. There's normally a charge to get into the museum, but it's free for the marathon. So you can come in and read along. And what I was saying earlier is that I won two tickets to the Siemens Bethel, and that is for the chapters where the Father Mapple, who I've mentioned in a past episode because he was mentioned in the Peabody Sisters, that book by Megan Marshall, as being based on a friend of Mary Peabody's, who was an actual pastor who preached along the shoreline in Boston and used a lot of nautical terms. So at the Moby Dick Marathon in New Bedford, they have the Siemens Bethel just across the street, which is a historic chapel for seafaring folk. And they read several of those chapters related to Father Mapple. The pulpit, instead of being your traditional pulpit, it's actually the bow of a ship. Oh, how cool. Yeah, isn't it cool? And so the person who's reading the preacher's line is up there. And then there's another reader reading the narrative when there's kind of a little crossover like that. Super fun. I was so happy to win tickets to that. Unfortunately, my book buddy here, Emily, couldn't attend with me, and no one else was available. It's kind of, you know, hard to, hey, want to go read Moby Dick, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Not something a lot of people are into, but I did find somebody there to give it to, because when I checked in to get my special red armband to get admission into the Siemens Bethel, I told them, I said, sorry, my friend couldn't make it. And the guy said, don't worry, just find somebody, you know, give it away. And oh, that's awesome. I was like, okay. Yeah. So I gave it to that woman who I asked, what chapter are they on? Mm-hmm. So she was super happy about that. And she's a local woman who has attended the marathon fairly regularly. And during the Siemens Bethel, when we're sitting there in the pew, a couple came in as everyone was filling in. And they were from Australia. Wow. Somebody said, you came here just for that? Or is this part of your itinerary? And they said, no, we came for this. Wow. Yeah, all the way from Australia to attend. They must win some award for that. Well, it was really funny because as they were saying that, the two guys in front of us turned around and they said, whoa, we thought we came from far away. We're from California. (laughs) Um, The people from Australia won the coming from the furthest away. 
But there are all ages there. There weren't a lot of little kids for obvious reasons, sitting around, sitting still for that long. Maybe not the best thing, but everything from high school age people to older folks, wonderful experience. I'm so happy I went. And I did a little shopping in the gift shop, of course, which is a nice shop. So afterwards, I didn't have a lot of time. I had to get back at a pretty decent hour, but I did walk around New Bedford, the historic area that I love it so much. It's one of my favorite places. They still have the old cobblestone streets, so you feel like you're walking where Herman Melville walked. One of the things I walked into was the New Bedford Library, which is in a gorgeous old building. So I walked around and took a lot of photos. I asked the librarian if it was okay, and she told me about an exhibit upstairs with some Moby Dick artwork. So that was neat. Had a wonderful day. I missed you. Oh, so sad. I was, oh, I had such FOMO because you posted some pictures as you were doing it. (laughs) And I was like, oh. (laughs) Well, you know what was fun, too, was that I had shared a story from the New Bedford Whaling Museum on Instagram of one of their employees doing a video on training for the Moby Dick Marathon, like, you know, holding the book and doing wrist movements and practice flipping the pages and practicing pronunciation and leg lifts and stuff. Wonderful, really well done video. And as I was leaving the museum to walk over to the Bethel, I left a little bit early because I just wanted to get some fresh air and and be outside for a little bit. So I thought, I'll take a picture of the museum's front, right? And as I'm taking the picture, the guy from the video walks out (laughs) and we made eye contact. And and I was like, you're the guy from the video. He's like, oh my gosh. And you look like you're a reader (laughs) because I had my Moby Dick in my hand. So we walked to the Bethel together and chatted a bit. And I just told him how lovely that video was. And he's like, I'm so glad you enjoyed it. And I told him I won the tickets. It was just nice to connect with him. Drew is his name. I don't know if I I said his name. Everyone there is so nice and friendly. There were a lot of people who looked like they were alone. And then there were groups of people, like groups of twos and threes and, and that kind of thing. So if you ever want to go to a Moby Dick marathon, I think this would be a great one to go to. You can stay somewhere in the area, or if you just come in for part of it, there's a parking garage just down the street, and parking is free in New Bedford on the weekends, even in that parking lot, which is really nice. Yeah, we'll put links in the show notes to the museum. Yeah, Yeah. so Moby Dick's going to be my book of the year. I plan on doing a buddy read in March, and then in July is the readathon at the Mystic Seaport Museum. That's always July 31st because it ends on August 1st, which is Melville's birthday. And they do that read-along on a whaling ship, the Morgan, which is the last existing wooden whaling ship in America. You have to start a hashtag, because I've already run into Moby Dick and the Covenant of Water. You had Dante and a doily, so (laughs) think of your hashtag, and we'll all start hashtagging it. (laughs) Well, as one of my friends said, you know, Chris, what's up with all the dead white men? You like yourself some dead white men. It's okay. such a good time. So I had two earbud adventures. Thank you to two of our listeners. Anne in Austin told me about Donnell Ryan, author of Queen of Dirt Island on NPR Book of the Day. Thank you so much, Anne. I talked about that when I was talking about the novel on our top 10 episode. And then Jessica recommended that I listen to an interview with Aaron French, the cookbook author of Big Heart, Little Stove. And that too was NPR Book of the Day. And I forgot about that 
podcast. It's really short. It's like seven to nine minutes, and they interview an author really quickly about their book. So thank you to both of you for pointing out those conversations. I really enjoyed them. And then I had one couch biblio adventure, which was Catherine May's book club, where she talked to Diane Henry about her cookbook, Roast Figs, Sugar Snow. Mm. It was really interesting because Catherine May, she's never talked to a cookbook author before. But Diane Henry, her cookbook is all about venturing out and traveling to these cold climates and how they cook their food and how we cook differently in the winter. And so they had a really fun conversation. I enjoyed it. Now, I will say on our BookTube channel, we talked about this cookbook and we showed the cover and we were comparing what we thought was the UK cover to the American cover. And actually what we were comparing was the newly released version of the cookbook to the old version of the cookbook. So there is a new copy of this book that was just published, updated 20 years later with new recipes, or I think added recipes, not new recipes. So again, that's Diane Henry's Roast Figs, Sugar Snow. It was a fun, wintry conversation. Nice. Well, one of the Couch Biblio adventures I had was watching Mars, the adaptation of the Andrew Ware novel, I love that movie so much. I haven't read the novel. Yeah, um, I haven't either, but that's a good one for us to put on our yes. book to movie adaptation. Yes. Yes, that's a good one because I actually think Jim would enjoy reading that novel, but hmm, we'll watch the movie and see if he wants to read the novel. Yeah. So <laughs> it's such an inspiring story. Yeah. Um, and then the other Biblio adventure I had was the Iliad discussion. We had a Zoom conversation, and there are a couple of Book Cougar listeners. With that, not that like it's an official book cougars event or anything. I think a lot of people were excited then about her Iliad translation coming out and purchased it right away in the fall and made plans to read it as their jump off book for 2024. So Colleen and Lizzie, and then some book cougar listeners are involved. Robin, uh, Susan, Katie, Colleen, Deb. It was just a fun conversation. And we thought we'd just talk a little bit about how it was going for us to start with. Emily Wilson has a hugely detailed introduction that has a ton of spoilers. If you've never read it before, you don't like spoilers. It is helpful to listen to because it does give you a lot of information about how to read the poem. She also has a translator's note, which is one of the best I've ever read about rhythm and poetry. And then in relation to translation, using words of certain lengths to get that rhythm. Wonderful, wonderful. So the conversation was great. Anyone is still welcome to join. We're mainly meeting up via Instagram. We have an Instagram chat with that. One of the things I was interested in is even just like a particular word. So I listened to this a lot, as I mentioned earlier on this episode. But one of the words that struck me was that I think... I don't remember who was being called this now, but there was a man, one of the main characters being called a womanizer. I was like, womanizer? Like, what does a womanizer mean in the context of a culture where women are enslaved and property? What does a womanizer mean? That was interesting to me. And then you get into the whole translation thing as well. I should just back up and say one of the reasons people are so excited about Emily Wilson's translation. And she points out in a video that I watched 
that she's not the first woman to translate the Iliad. There was a woman prior who had done that. But that so many of the translations and the standard ones that are used in classrooms a lot would translate. And this is not the whole reason why she translated it by any means. This is just something that stuck in my head was that when a woman was being translated, earlier translator would just use words like whore or slut or something derogatory about a woman when she was like, wow, according to the original, she was a slave or some other status, which really changes your understanding of what's going on. So really appreciate her introduction explaining that there's a wonderful video too that we'll put in the show notes with her reading both the English and then reading in Greek the opening of the poem. Brilliant, brilliant. She has to just be a fantastic teacher. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, she brings it to life so well. If you are interested in joining that, reach out to bookcougars at gmail.com and we can put you in touch with that Instagram group. So do you have any upcoming adventures? Upcoming adventures? I do. I'm super excited. Um, on January 20th, there's going to be, through Biographies International Organization, what they're calling their Biography Lab. And this is Saturday, January 20th. It's kind of an all-day thing, like I think 10 to 5 or something. It's online, and non-members can participate as well. It's $60 if you're not a member, free if you are a member of bio, as it's called, or if you're a student, it's also free. What this is, is they're going to have a keynote speaker. Kai Bird is going to speak. And one of his more well-known biographies was American Prometheus, which he co-authored with Martin Sherwin. And that was the inspiration for the recent film Oppenheimer. So he's going to be speaking. And then there are going to be three different 90-minute forums by three different biographers. And one of them is Janice P. Nomura, who was a guest of ours on episode 139. She is the author of The Blackwell Sisters, which was one of our read-along books during our year of reading nonfiction. And the topic of her forum is Nasty Women, Making a Good Story Out of Bad Behavior. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great title. I look forward to that. What about you? Yes, I'm heading to Colorado tomorrow. It's my birthday. So I'm heading to Colorado to see my son, Jacob. And on Thursday, we're going to go see Ann Patchett and Elizabeth McCracken in conversation together, which is why I'm reading both of them right now. And this is sponsored by Aspen Words, which is part of the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is a kind of like a think tank around big ideas, and they bring people there, particularly in the summer for these big events. But Aspen Words is a separate part of the organization that focuses on literary things. They have a literary award right now. The long list is out. When I was researching this, I found out that Adrian Broder is their executive director who's a novelist, and one of her novels was one of Russell's top 10 this year. So I thought that was interesting. Aspen Words was founded in 1976. And over the course of the winter, they offer Aspen Words, which is a four-part series. And Abraham Verghese is going to be one of the authors. I bought my son and daughter-in-law the four-part series, and I have a fantasy of flying back for each one of them, but (laughs) we'll see how that goes. I'm starting out with the first one, which is Ann Patchett and Elizabeth McCracken. Very excited. 
That will be exciting. I can't wait to hear about that. Yeah. How about upcoming reads? I have one, which is Erasure by Percival Everett. Percival Everett was one of the authors that Russell recommended to us as a book that he was looking forward to reading his new book, James, which is coming out this year. Erasure is a novel that is the basis for the new movie coming out called American Fiction. And it's about a black man who is a serious literary novelist, but is told that his writing's not black enough. That's my understanding of it. So he writes a novel that's very, I'm using air quotes, black, and gets great fame for it. So it's kind of poking a finger at the publishing industry. And the movie's getting huge praise. So this is going to be one of my first movies with the book to movie adaptation. Nice. Yeah, I'm hoping to read it on the plane. Well, um, I plan on reading very soon, Finding Margaret Fuller by Allison Pataki. This is a new novel that's coming out March 19th from Ballantine Books. And then I just wanted to alert listeners that Louise Penny has a new novel coming out in her Chief Inspector Gamache series. The title is The Gray Wolf, and that will be coming out October 29th from Minotaur Press. Pre-order now if you're interested. Ooh, that's an interesting title, The Gray Wolf. Yes. If you're not following her on Facebook or signed up for her newsletter, I recommend both. She sends out the newsletter the first of the month, like... It's always there. And that's usually how I know, oh, time to flip my calendar. Um, (laughs) But she said on Facebook that a lot of people were commenting about The Gray Wolf and that they really liked the title and that she would maybe eventually give a little hint about what it was referring to. Mm. So we'll see. Something to look forward to. Yes. All right. Wow. Wow. Well, we thought if it was just the two of us, it'd be a pretty short episode, but... Nope. Lots of books. (laughs) We did some reading, folks. We did some reading. We hope that you are off to a good 2024 reading year. We wish you lots of happy happy reading. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media, Goodreads, or email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. If you'd like to help support our podcast, please tell others about us, leave a review wherever you listen, and consider becoming a patron. Even a dollar a month is a big help. Learn more about that on our website, bookcougars.com, where you'll find the show notes for this and all of our past episodes. Thanks, everybody. This episode was edited by Pat Keogh Sound Design.